Glad you are here. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Um, and I am thrilled to look out and see all the faces that I see this morning. And I'm going to publicly declare that you are no longer saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but by summer Sunday attendance. So um, you guys have won the award. Um, everyone else is trying to sneak in their last-minute vacation before school gets back and, uh, and work pressures start piling up again. So I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're with us. Um, Jonathan Edwards, one of our, our favorite theologians, probably the greatest mind uh, ever produced in this nation, uh, he was famous for saying that it's, it's one thing to have an understanding that honey is sweet, but it's a much different thing altogether to have a sense of its sweetness. And it's one thing to know with your mind that honey is sweet and to be able to argue about the sweetness of honey. It's another thing altogether to have a taste, an experience, or a sense of just how sweet that honey really is. And as we have been taking the last few weeks to walk through Paul's letter to his uh, protege, Titus, who was trying to establish and, and shepherd a new local church in the island of Crete, we've essentially been looking at the Apostle Paul's encouragement to Titus to do this very thing, to, to not just proclaim the good news of God's grace in the gospel, to not just hold firm to the trustworthy message as it's been taught, to not just be able to understand with our minds what it is to know about who Jesus is and what difference it makes in our lives and how we understand who we are and who God is and how we relate to one another. We're to not just know about grace, but to see a healthy church grow, to see a healthy life grow, to see maturity set in in our lives and in our communities. We must not just understand and know grace, but we need to be able to enjoy grace. We need to not just know about the grace of God that's come to us through Jesus, but we must have a sense of its goodness, a sense of its mercy, a, a sense of its stability, a sense of its strength. And so we've been walking through this letter as Paul's encouraged Titus to deeply, powerfully, and consistently encourage this church to learn what it is to enjoy grace. Because as you learn what it is to enjoy grace in increasing manners, you begin to see that grace alone changes everything about who you are. Only grace alone that comes through understanding who God is for us in Christ has the power to change everything about you. How you understand who you are and how you relate to God. Grace changes everything. And we looked at his encouragement to Titus to say to bring health and stability to the life of a growing local church community just like this one, a new one that's been formed by the preaching of the gospel. You need leaders who understand what it is to enjoy grace. And we've taken a couple of weeks to look at what the profile or the snapshot of a, of a leader who's learning to enjoy grace deeply in his life looks like and why that's so important. Paul was zealous for this to be found in this church as we are here. Because grace and our understanding of grace and our capacity to enjoy grace protects us from a whole host of, of ills and evils that have seek to destroy not only our souls but then our, our lives and our households. And that's what was happening there. Whole households were being destroyed as people were falling away from a sincere taste and a sincere enjoyment of the grace of God and beginning to believe things that were not true about the gospel. And so we looked at the importance of having leaders who enjoy grace. And then we, we looked at a snapshot of the life of a local church as it's beginning to understand and get a sense of what it is to enjoy grace. And we talked about men who enjoy grace and, and women who enjoy grace. And as that enjoyment begins to grow together, as that sense of grace is growing in our hearts and our soul is being cultivated to reflect the greatness of God, we begin to grow in a sense of responsibility and care for one another. 
And we talked about how a maturing church, a, a healthy church, a church that's enjoying the grace of God deeply is a church where men and women are growing in their sense of responsibility for one another and caring for the spiritual welfare and well-being of one another. No, no man left behind. We talked about last week. And, and I said last week, though, that we would use that as kind of a launching pad or, or kind of a, a runway off script to take a week, maybe two weeks, to talk a little bit more uh, about men and women who enjoy grace. And, and in particular, what it looks like when those two people come together in, in marriages that enjoy grace. So um, as I said last week, as a faithful and, and humble and servant, I will venture into those waters uh, a little bit more this week. And I want to talk this morning about what it looks like to find a man and to find a woman who enjoys grace. What does that look like? And then what does it look like when those two come together and get married? And I want to say this at the beginning. This is for everybody. This is for those who've been married for one year, those who've been married for 30 years. This is for those who were married once before and are praying right now that God would heal their hurts. That God would heal their hurts and praying about whether or not he would would grant them the opportunity to be married again. And this is for those who have not yet been married and who are praying that God would bring them the person that they are to spend the rest of their life with. This is for everybody. We're going to take a snapshot of what this looks like, and I'm going to give you my, my thesis up front. I rarely ever do this. We're going to do things different in the summer. I'm going to give you my thesis up front, and here it is. Your marriage, whether it exists right now or the one you're looking to down the road, your marriage will be no better than the vision that you have for it and the vision that you have for your spouse and the willingness that you have to sacrifice for the cultivation of the character of Christ in one another. Your marriage, the one you have now or the one you want to have, will be no better than the vision that you have for it and the vision that you have for your spouse and your willingness to sacrifice to see the cultivation of the character of Christ formed in one another. Let me pray for us this morning, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to come together as your people. Lord, as Rick said, I, I pray that I be found hiding deep behind your cross. That what stands out this morning as we go to your word and, and take a look at the portrait that you've proclaimed in scripture of a man and a woman who, enjoy gra- who enjoys grace and of a marriage that reflects an enjoyment of that grace, that it would be found in the shadow of the cross as well. So I'd ask that you come and and you do for us what we can't do for ourselves this morning. And by your spirit, you help us to surrender our hearts and our souls and our wills and our minds to you. Uh, may we desire to be changed into the likeness of your son. That you would receive glory. We would receive great joy. And we ask these things in the name of him who gave himself up for us. Jesus Christ. To him be all glory and honor. Amen. All right, if we're going to talk about having a vision or a picture, and I don't mean vision like vision statement or some kind of uh, corporate understanding of vision. I mean a snapshot, a picture, uh, something to put out in front of you of where you're going and where you're to be headed, a a vision that the Scripture has given us for what marriage is to look like. If we're going to get a vision of marriage as God has proclaimed it so that you can put it next to the vision that you have for yours, we're going to have to open up our Bibles and, and start back in the beginning. Uh, We have a tendency to talk about marriage and we go to particular passages in the Bible uh, forgetting that all of the Bible deals with all of us as sinners and God's story of redemption and that we can go almost anywhere to understand our lives in marriage and in relationship to one another. But if we're going to get a picture of everything, we need to go back to the beginning. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 2. 
I'm going to read a lot of Bible this morning because I want you to hear it. And we'll read and we'll talk and we'll read and we'll talk. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. We'll start there. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You must surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and to the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Something that I want you to see this morning as we talk about the, the vision and the purpose for our marriage, and then we look at the vision of the man and the woman that God is bringing together, I want you to notice in this passage, it's taught so often, it's so familiar to all of us. And the first thing I want you to notice relates to things we've talked about in the past couple of weeks as we looked at snapshots of men and women who are enjoying grace. I want you to see that God's creation of Adam and God's creation of Eve, God's creation of man, and God's creation of woman. When did they occur? In the timing of Genesis. When did they occur? They occurred in the very beginning, didn't they? So in the very beginning, God created man and he created woman. And they were created in the image of God. Each man, each woman created to reflect something unique about the character and the nature of God. Something about God is being reflected in the way that he created man and the way that he made him, the way that he formed them, the tasks that he gave him to do. Something about the nature and the character of God is inherent and reflected back in the way that he created woman, the way that he formed her, the distinctives that he gave her and what he called her to do. Both are equal before God, both created in the image of God, and before creation, both made distinct both made different. See, the one thing we talk about when we get to marriage and we get to men and we get to women and we get to all these subjects that get so crazy and they get so frustrating is we tend to forget that the distinctives that make us man and that make us woman, the distinctives that make us men and that make us women came in creation. They weren't a result of the fall. Often when we talk about marriage and we talk about relationships between men and women, we talk about distinctives and, and callings and, and characteristics of men and women, we try to explain them away as a result of what happened after Genesis chapter 3. But you've got to see if we're going to understand marriage and we're going to understand these portraits of men and women who enjoy grace, that the distinctives that characterize what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, they actually started in the beginning. They were actually pre-fall. The distinctiveness of manhood and womanhood were part of God's good creation. Here's the thing. We struggle 
And I'm trying to say this cautiously. We struggle when we talk about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman because there is an enemy who has sought from the very beginning to destroy God's glory. And the reality of it is he can never destroy God and he can never destroy God's glory. So from the very beginning, he has set his target on God's reflection. And from the very beginning, the enemy has sought to create counterfeit understandings and counterfeit ideas of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. He's created counterfeit pathways to understanding how it is to live as a man and how it is to live as a woman and what it looks like when we come together. You see, we struggle in trying to understand what this looks like and what this means and how we do this and and what it is to understand how God has made us because there is an enemy who is seeking to destroy God's glory and he can't destroy God. So he's gone after his reflection. And so if we talk about what it means to be a man and a woman, we talk about marriage, you've got to start in the very beginning and see that the way that we were created was part of God's design from the beginning. It didn't come about after sin entered the picture and it didn't come about after the fall. So our distinctiveness is rooted in God's intention and creation and so is the purpose for marriage and this is what we're going to get to. The purpose that God gave man and woman from the very beginning before the fall was that together they were to go about the business of cultivating the creative order. They were to go about the business together of cultivating God's creation to reflect God's glory inherent in it. They were to take the beauty of the garden through the sweat of their hands and the work that they did together. They were to cultivate that garden that it might spread out and spread itself throughout all of creation. And as they did that, the inherent wisdom and glory of God would be revealed in the depth and the intricacies of the creative order. As they did that, they would learn more about the one who created them and created all these things. And in the the beginning, that would roll back up into sufficient praise and worship and trust and dependence upon God who created them, who created these things, who sustains them, who sustains these things. That was the purpose that God gave man and woman from the very beginning in their union together in marriage. Together, they were to labor together to cultivate creation to reflect the glory of God. That was the purpose that God gave them for marriage. And just as the distinctiveness of being man and the distinctiveness of being woman did not occur after the fall, so did the purpose of their union together in marriage. So was it created before the fall, and it does not change either. If we're going to understand the purpose for the marriage that God has given us, the marriage that we pray for, we're going to have to understand the purpose of our marriage in light of God's purpose for it. Sin did not change God's purpose for marriage. It simply changed the way that creation responded to it. God's purpose for marriage was for a husband and a wife, a man and a woman together, to cultivate the creative order, to cultivate their souls, to reflect the character of God inherent in it, to reflect the glory of God inherent in it to ever-increasing measure. That did not change after the fall. All that changed was the way that creation responded to it. All that changed was the way that creation responded to the man and woman's efforts to do the very thing God had called them to do, including themselves. No longer was it so easy for us to be co-laborers in this. No longer did we work together serving one another to see the creative order cultivated, to see God's glory reflected. Now we work against one another. Now creation is responding in negativity and futility to one another. No longer do we seek to serve towards God's ends and God's means. We now seek to be served and to get from others what 
it is we think we want and think we need. So the distinctiveness of being a man and a woman started in the very beginning. The purpose that God brings us together for, the purpose for marriage, the vision that God has given for marriage started in the beginning and it didn't change after the fall. We are together to labor to cultivate the character of God in a chaotic world and to cultivate the soul of our spouse to reflect the character of Christ. My favorite writers, Chimper Longman said this, He said, life is a battle, and marriage is part of it. But we are called to engage the enemy together and work together to cultivate the glory of God in our home, our hearts, and our surroundings. So your marriage, whether you're in one now or the marriage that you're praying for down the road that God would give you, will be no better than the vision that you have for it and the vision that you have for your spouse and your willingness that you have to sacrifice for the cultivation of Christ in one another. Is that the vision that you have for your marriage? Is that the vision that you have for your marriage? Together with your spouse. To serve and to sacrifice, to see the character of God cultivated in the soul of one another, in your homes, in your lives, and in your environment. Do you see yourself, as Longman would say, as intimate allies, engaging to cultivate the chaos of a fallen world to reflect the inherent beauty and glory of God? Is that the vision that you have for your marriage? That's the vision that God gave for marriage from the very beginning. But I want to kind of move on for a second. I want to talk about looking at a snapshot again of what it looks like to find a a man and a woman who will engage in this battle. You need to have a vision for your marriage, but you need to have a vision for your spouse. You see, because at the very beginning, together, as you cultivate the creative order to reflect the character of Christ, that involves your spouse. You're responsible in this process to serve and to sacrifice to see the character of God cultivated in your, in your husband and in your wife. So you not only have to have a vision for what you do as a family in your marriage, you need to have a vision for what God is calling your spouse to be and your role in seeing that cultivated in their soul. So let me just give you another snapshot. We've, we've looked at a few of these as we've gone through Titus and talked about all the characteristics that he lays out, but I want to stay in the Old Testament just to give you more. This is the summer of just inundating you with traits and characteristics of men and women who enjoy grace. Is that all right? You keep coming back, so I just keep giving you more. I mean, maybe you won't come back and I won't give you any more, but I'm gonna give you more. So we'll start with a man. Is it okay if we start with a man? Let's yell at him for a little bit. Psalm, go to Psalm 112. We don't usually go here when we talk about what it looks like to be a man who enjoys grace. And I put it up on the slides. I don't mean it to be funny, but a good man is hard to find. And if you're married... And if you're, or if you're not married, this is the man that you're supposed to be looking for. If you're married, this is the man you're supposed to be praying that God continue to cultivate your husband into. If you're not married, this is the man that you should not settle until you find. Psalm 112. Now I want to tell you a couple of things about this psalm before we get into it. I just want to point out some things in it. We're not going to, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But this psalm is, is often referred to now when you hear people teach on it, if you ever hear people teach on it, as one that's inclusive of men and women. And everything that he says in this psalm could be true of a man and it could be true of a woman. But I want you to understand that when they wrote this psalm, the author's intended intent was for it to be written about a man. He was writing about a man. All that he says about this man could be true of a woman. Great. Fantastic. He wrote it to deal with a man. So I want you to get that. And then I also want you to get that this psalm, Psalm 112, is actually an acrostic poem. Do you know what an acrostic poem is? 
you know, Chris dropped grammar on you, I'll drop poetry on you. You know what an acrostic is? In, in, in Hebrew, these guys, this poem, they, they took the first letter of the alphabet, and each new line of the poem is the next letter of the alphabet. So what you need to understand is that this isn't a job description. This isn't a, a, a job description that you're supposed to take and judge yourself by and see whether you measure up or whether you fail or judge next to your husband and say, well, yes, no, yes, no, I don't think so. This was an author's intent to talk about what it means to be a man that enjoys grace and fears God and to come up with 22 characteristics of that man that he could praise. It's not a job description. But there's a few things in here that I want you to note. So if you're looking for a man and you're praying that your husband become a man that enjoys grace in your marriage, I want you to notice a few things. Again, I'm going to read a lot and then we'll talk. I'm going to read this to you because I want you to hear it. Praise be the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures, endures forever. Light dawns upon the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So as we go through these, I want you to ask yourself, I'm going to put out four things that are in here. And I just want you to ask yourself, men, is this characteristic of you? As we talk about this man that the psalmist praises here, these four things, is it characteristic of you? And, and as you look at your heart and look at your life, I want you to ask yourself those things. I want you to wrestle with those things. And I want you to pray that God would continue to cultivate these things in you. And wives, pray these things for your husband. Don't hold these things over his head. Pray that God will continue to work these things into his life. I'm giving you a picture of how you can serve him in praying. And men, I want to give you a picture of who God is shaping you to become. First thing that you've got to see, a man that enjoys grace, a, a man that you're looking for, this snapshot of a man who is called in Psalm 112. You've got to find a man who fears the Lord. You've got to find a man who, who fears God alone. Men have all ways in all manner of capacity of projecting fearlessness. We have all different ways that we like to puff out our chests and make ourselves look tough. We have all manner of ways of trying to prove our, our fearlessness and our manliness. But I will say this, men, knowing myself and knowing many of you, men are some of the most fearful people I have ever been around. Men are some of the most fearful people I've ever been around. We tend to fear the opinions of other people more. We tend to fear conflict, not because we don't like conflict, but because we're afraid of what other people will think about us. When you are a man who struggles to fear what other people will think about you, who struggles with conflict because you're afraid of what other people will think about you, who fears other people's opinions and reputations in such a way that it compels and shapes and drives the way you behave, you have exalted something else above God as the chief and supreme thing to which you're to fear. A man who enjoys grace and who cultivates an enjoyment of grace in his marriage. A man that you need to be looking for, ladies. 
if you're not married, and praying for if you are, is a man who fears God alone above all things. For the man who fears God alone above all things has no reason to fear other men, has no reason to fear other opinions, has no reason to fear other perceptions because they alone are not eternal. They will fade away. God alone is eternal and God alone is supreme. So you need to look for a man who fears God alone. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And blessed is the man who greatly delights in his commandments. You need to find a man who delights in God's word. You need to find a man who delights in God's word. In his word is where that man finds the picture of God, finds the grandeur of God, finds the supremacy of God, finds the holiness of God, and experiences the grace of God alone and God being for us what we cannot be for ourselves. You need to find a man who is surrendering to the word of God. You need to find a guy who's understanding his place in this world, his story in this world, his purpose in this world, being defined by God's purpose, God's story, and God's intention for this world. You need to find a man who who not only fears God, but who surrenders to his word. You need to find a man who's a Bible guy, who's a scripture guy, who knows that God's word is inerrant and has no mistakes, who knows that God's word is authoritative and therefore there's no confusion in it. You need to find a man who fears the Lord and surrenders to his word, knowing that God's word alone is the one true source of wisdom. It brings him lasting fruitfulness in his life as he continues to learn to trust it, love it, cherish it, and surrender to it. You need to find a guy who fears God alone. You need to find a guy who delights in God's word. And this is one that I absolutely love about Psalm 112. When those two things are present in a man, when a man is growing increasingly in greater measure to fear God alone and to surrender to his word, what you find in a man being produced is a guy who does not flinch in the future. You need to find a man who does not flinch in the future because of his unswerving, unwavering confidence in who God is and in God's word. Look at verses seven and eight. Look at this guy. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm because it's trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Do you hear the honesty inherent in those verses? I mean, what's the honesty inherent in those two verses? It presupposes that this guy is going to get bad news. The presupposition is that life is going to be difficult. Life is going to be hard. Creation is going to push back against you. Creation is going to push back against your attempts to cultivate the character of God in it. Others are going to push back against you. Life is going to be difficult. There's going to be bad news, but this guy, because of his fear of God alone, his security in God alone, his identity in God alone, his surrendering to God's word alone and trusting its authority and its usefulness and its wisdom has no reason to fear the difficulties of life. He doesn't flinch at what comes down the road in the future because his confidence and his identity is not wrapped up in those things. His security and identity are not wrapped up in what he can do and produce and control. It's all wrapped up in who God is. It's all wrapped up in who God says he is and how he understands himself to relate to God because of his word. You need to find a man and pray your man towards being a man who fears God alone and surrenders to his word and doesn't flinch at what comes down the road because it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. I mean, just think. I mean, I, 
I try to implore you as often as I can to slow down when you read these things. Think about what this guy had to deal with. I mean, sometimes I think we try to make the argument that these guys live in a time that we don't live in and they don't face the pressures that we, don't, that we face and they don't face the circumstances that we face. They were pre-modern people and life in this crazy modern world is so different than theirs. S- slow down before you let yourself off the hook. For this man, everyday life was faced with the ever-present reality of famine, disease, war, death, He was faced with complexities and struggles that are no different than yours. But because of his security in God, because of his surrender to his word, he was a man that was so steady in his understanding of who he was before God that he has no reason to flinch, no reason to fear. And because he has no reason to flinch at the future, no reason to fear what comes ahead because of how he understands himself, the next verses say he's a man who's free to give. He's a man, because of his understanding of who he is before God and his confidence in God's purpose and plan for his creation, that it drives him to be a man who's who's free to give. I mean, look what it says right after his fearlessness about the future. He has distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And because of it, his horn, talking about like a bull, his, his horn, his standard, is exalted in honor. Because he lacked fear, and was confident in God regarding the future, he was free to be generous. The result, verse 10 says, the enemies, those who would oppose him, those who would stand before him and mock him, those who would stand before him to tear him down, those who would stand before him to see him wasted away, they in turn were the ones that were wasted away. They in turn were the ones who had nothing left to say. They in turn were the ones who were vanquished. What kind of guy are you looking for? What kind of guy should you be praying for? What kind of guy should you be cultivating in your husband through prayer. This is the kind of God that you should be looking for. This is a snapshot of the vision that you can have for yourself, for your future husband, for your current husband. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to do this for the women too. We're going to stop and I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray for the men and then we're talking about the women. I'm going to pray for the women. Is that all right? If you've got a husband, pray for him while we pray. Father, thank you for... um, Thank you for your word that presents to us your character in all of its splendor and all of its glory. It presents to us your mercy and your grace. Father, thank you for the men that you brought to this church. We're two years old, this church is, and already there are almost as many, if not more, men on every given, any given Sunday here than women. That's unheard of in churches in this country. God, would you continue to do what only you can do to cultivate men who would reflect your glory in this place? Lord, cultivate men in this church who fear you alone, Lord, who are surrendering to your word and understanding who they are in light of your good purposes for your creation. Let that produce men in this church who are fearless as they face the future, who are fearless as they move their lives and their families ahead in the cultivation of your character and the spheres of influence that you've given them. Let that produce a generosity in our men that's free to sacrifice not only their resources, but their time, their efforts, their passions, to see your glory cultivated in the lives of other people. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit doing its work in the lives of men in this place. We ask that we be a church where men are challenged, men are grown, and men are cultivated to reflect a deep enjoyment in your grace. Amen.
Can't be done. You ready for the women? Flip forward. We're going to go to a familiar passage, Proverbs 31. Good man is hard to find. Sometimes so is a good woman. I told my wife that. She said I could say that. It's all right. I just felt visual daggers in my brain. What are you looking for? Proverbs 31. This might be the most maligned, mistreated, slandered, abused, confused woman in history. She might have taken more punishment at the hands of men and women over history than almost any woman imaginable. We won't spend a lot of time looking at it. There's a couple of things I want to point out. Before I do, I want to tell you a little bit about Proverbs 31 in case you haven't heard. Just like Psalm 112, you know Proverbs 31 is an acrostic? Did you know that? Proverbs 31 is not a job description of what a woman is supposed to be. Proverbs 31 is not to be used to sit on top of your wife, on top of another woman, on top of anybody else, to measure up to all the things that this particular woman does as though it was a job description of what a woman was supposed to be. Proverbs 31 is an acrostic poem. It was the author's attempt at saying, what does it look like to find a woman who fears God? And he took 22 letters in an alphabet and came up with 22 praiseworthy things to find about her. It's just a picture. It's not a particular description. In fact, I love, John Piper said this. He said that this chapter, Psalm 31, is not an argument that's being built like Paul does in Romans, which is how often, that's how we use this. This isn't an argument that's being built like Paul does in Romans. The author, listen to this, just hold this if you hold anything. The author is stringing pearls. He set himself to the task of praising the woman who fears the Lord. And to do this, he tries to think of 22 praiseworthy attributes about her. It's a poem. It's a song of praise. It's not a list of duties. It's not a list of duties. It's not a job description. It's a poem that's meant to encourage It's a poem that's meant to turn your eyes towards God in praise. It's a poem that's meant to praise a woman as she grows in the fear of the Lord. That's what Psalm 31 actually is. And so I'm going to read it to us, and then I want to point out a couple of things about her like we did the gods. Proverbs 31, we'll start in verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? And I love the fact that he started that way, because in Proverbs 19, 14, he actually answered that, kind of presupposing his end. Do you know that? Proverbs 19, 14 says that a woman who fears the Lord is a gift from God. An excellent wife who can find, well, you can't. She's a gift from God. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and she buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household. For all of her homes, are, all of her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. 
She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. What are you looking for? What are you praying towards, ladies? When you go quietly before God and you ask God to cultivate the character of his son in your heart and in your soul. Husbands, when you pray for your wives, when you pray that the vision that God has given for a woman who fears the Lord be worked fully and completely in your wife that she may reflect his glory and find great joy in it. What are you praying? Here, here are just a few things I want you to pray. First, pray that she is a woman who fears God alone, just like the men. In fact, did you listen? Did you listen to how many similarities are there between Psalm 112 and Proverbs 31? Did you hear that? The fearlessness the strength, the trust in God, the fear of God alone. You're looking for a woman who fears God alone, and I love how they put it in the very end. And if we've got time, we'll look at it the same way in 1 Peter in just a minute. Charm and beauty are put in their place. Do you know that? In praying for a wife, in praying for your soul, ladies, to reflect the character of God, this woman has grown to the place where charm and, and beauty, valuable as they are, are put in their place. No longer is an identity sought in those things. No longer is a strength and an assurance and a comfort sought in trying to enhance charm and beauty. Eternally, they're worthless. Over time, they're all fade. And this is the woman who's come to fear, to fear God alone. Because without that, and what really do charm and beauty get you? I mean, without the depth of the fear of God alone, without the cultivation of a soul that's deeply learning to enjoy grace, what do charm and beauty really get you in the long run? So you're looking for a woman who, who fears God alone, the depth of her faith, the depth of her trust, the, the depth of her enjoyment of grace. And that's what's praised about this lady. There's two other things I want you to see. Two other things that are, that are fun that are in here that I want you to think about praying. First thing I want you to see is that you want to pray for and pray towards being a lady and looking for a lady who cultivates her, her world. Who cultivates her world. I'm actually tired out by listening to this lady. She's very busy. Unlike the ladies in Crete that we talked about the last couple of weeks, idleness is not her thing. Sitting around, drinking too much, gossiping too much, hanging out at other people's houses, wasting the day away, that's not characteristic of this lady. I get tired just thinking about reading all the things that this lady does. This lady is not a doormat. She's not a trophy wife. She's not an ornament to be hung on the door of the house. This is a lady who's dynamic, who contributes to the work of her husband and their purpose to cultivate the character of Christ in their world. She is a helpmate just as God created her with her husband to cultivate the character of Christ in her home, in her own soul, and in the soul of her husband, such to the degree that you find him at the city gates, which is a place of prominence. 
He was a successful man to, find, to be found at the city gates with the elders, meant that he had a level of prominence. And when he's there, what does he do? He praises her. He praises her, which is giving her credit for his success. You find a woman who's very dynamic, very engaged with him in the process of cultivating the soul of their family, cultivating one another's souls. I love the fact, there's a few things I want to point out because I've missed them until recently, until Aaron and I have been going through this. Proverbs 31 says that she's strong, but her strength is demonstrated in the context of her care for her family. It says that in verse 17. And then it goes on, and there's this underlying picture that I want you to get this morning. There's this underlying picture in Psalm 31 that we miss in English, and this has been so encouraging to us. It's an underlying picture that you miss in English because we don't translate it well. But there's this motif about this woman that's there in the original Hebrew that kind of paints a picture of her being like a very noble warrior. There's language used of her that's only reserved for war heroes and nobility in Hebrew. When it talks about her being dignified and having dignity, that's a word that's only used in talking about men in battle, men who have been successful in battle. And when it says she lacks nothing of value, the actual Hebrew for that is she does not return without plunder. She's out cultivating. She's busy in the process of doing the thing that God created her to do, to cultivate the character of her soul and the soul of her family and her husband and her home and her world. She's engaged with her husband in the process of doing the very thing that God brought them together to do. She's a noble, gritty, dynamic, faithful, strong woman who's engaged with energy in the purpose for which God created her. So you've got to ask yourself, are, are, are you engaged? Are you engaged in the process of cultivating the character of your soul, of your kids, of, your, of yourself, of, of your husband, of, of your home, of, of the place where God's put you? Are you actively engaged in the process of doing what God has called you to do to push back the chaos that continues to grow and develop because of sin in this world? Are you, are you busy in that process of cultivating the creation to reflect the character of God or are you, have you missed it? Are you idle? Have you missed that God has called you into that process? to find this lady. Pray to be this lady. Pray that God cultivate this in your soul. Pray for your wives. The other thing about this lady, she's always, she's always caring and doing all that she's doing, not for her own selfish ends, but for the ends of her family and her home. You know, both ends of the debate we talked about last week about whether women are supposed to work at home, stay at home, all those things we try to read into the Titus passage last week, people try to read into this passage too. And do you know that people on both sides of the debate go to this passage to prove their point? Because that was never the intention of this passage. Both sides of the debate can go to this passage and prove their point because this passage wasn't written to prove either of their points. She cares about the cultivation of the character of Christ in her family and in her home. Nowhere in this passage does it say how she particularly does that other than serving them through her efforts. Everything that she does from her production of, of, of linens to her production of scarves to her process in the fields is done that she could give of herself for the betterment of her home. Whether she does that somewhere else, whether she does it in her home, that's not what this passage is talking about. 
It's talking about the fact that this is a woman who has sacrificed her own agendas, sacrificed her own purposes, sacrificed her own self-seeking desires to serve the betterment of the cultivation of the character of God in her home and in her family. Well, that's special. That's a very special thing. And that's something that God alone produces in the soul of someone who's increasingly growing in the capacity to enjoy grace, who's growing in knowing what it is to fear God, surrender to his word, and allow that to produce in them a desire to be who he has created them to be. You're looking for this. Now let me say this before we go, because I'm, I'm going quick through these. If you hear this in Psalm 112, men, and you hear this in Proverbs 31, women, and you begin to get despair, you continue to hear them as descriptions that you continue to fail to meet, job descriptions that you just can never attain, roles that you just can never fulfill. Let me encourage you, don't despair. Please don't despair. Our shortcomings in these things, the, the lack of these things being cultivated in our hearts and being reflected in the way that we live, they are just reminders that we are sinners who need a Savior. They're just reminders that we are sinners who need a Savior and that God alone is the one who has provided a Savior for sinners in Jesus. Let these things not drive you to despair, but drive you back to the cross just as Rick was talking about in the very beginning, read these things and find yourself hiding behind the cross, surrendering before the cross. Let these things drive you back to the grace of God alone that can produce in us the very things he's called us to be. Don't let these things produce despair in you, but let them drive you back to him. Let them drive you back to the him as the source of the grace and the power and the capacity to change. He is not surprised that you fall short in some of these things. He's not taken off guard that you fail to fear him before other things very often. He's not surprised. But he alone is the one capable of cultivating your soul to reflect the character of his son. He's the one that has the capacity to do that. So those are just two portraits, snapshots, non-comprehensive pictures of what it looks like to be a man or a woman that enjoys grace. But neither really talks about what it looks like when those two people come together. Does it? Neither of them really talk about what it means to take that guy and that woman and stick them together in marriage and have them join one another in the process of cultivating the creative order to reflect the character of Christ. What does that actually look like? That's where I want to end this morning. You can flip over to the New Testament. Go to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Actually, don't go there. Let me go here. I think this will be more, I think this will serve you more. Go to Philippians 2. What does it look like in this world of chaos, in this world still struggling with the effects of sin, to do battle as a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, together to cultivate the character of God in ourselves and in our spouses? Because here's the thing, I want you to catch this. We will either cultivate beauty in one another or we will intensify chaos. That's it, really. It all boils down to that. We'll either cultivate beauty or we'll intensify chaos. One characteristic of a marriage between a man who is learning to enjoy grace and a woman who is learning to enjoy grace and together seeking to fulfill the purpose for which God has brought them together which is to cultivate their souls and to cultivate their creation 
to reflect the character of God is that their marriage displays a mutual sacrifice. It displays a mutual sacrifice. And look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I just want you to hear this. We're so quick to run to Ephesians 5, as we should, and, and 1 Peter 3, like I was going to take you. But I don't want you to miss, the Bible speaks to all the problems and issues that we face. All of the Bible speaks to us as sinners in need of a Savior. All of the Bible speaks to the issues that we deal with as men and women coming together in marriage. We don't have to just run to the other places. Look, look at this. Ephesians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In marriage, a man who is learning to enjoy grace and a woman who is learning to enjoy grace are men and women who are consistently laying down their lives, laying down their wills, laying down their purposes, laying down their plans for the betterment of the other. Our wills, our priorities, our wants, they're all second to our responsibility to cultivate the character of Christ in our spouse. What would it look like to be a place full of men who aren't married, who are learning to serve the needs of others ahead of their own, women who are learning the same thing, and marriages who are displaying this on a consistent basis. I mean, what, was it, what would it look like if we did nothing in our marriages from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, we counted our spouse more significant than ourselves? What would that actually look like? I mean, what if as an unmarried man or woman, you learned to do nothing because of a, a fear in God of who he is and his holiness and his sovereignty produced in a surrender to his word and a trust in his grace produced a humility in you that your first thought, your first intention, your first motivation in a circumstance or situation was to do nothing out of selfish ambition, rivalry or conceit, but to lay your will and your intent down for the betterment of another. What if this was the reality? What if this was characteristic of our marriages? What if this was characteristic of our church community? What if this was characteristic of us? A marriage that displays a trust and an enjoyment in the grace of God. A man and a woman who display a trust and a deep and abiding enjoyment in the grace of God. Our men and women who are learning what it is to sacrifice together. To lay down rivalry and conceit and selfish ambition and to serve one another. Let me, let me end with this. One of my favorite writers in, in relation to marriage, a guy named Gary Ricucci, he said this. He said, the more we learn about the grace and love of God displayed in the gospel, the better we can demonstrate such grace and love to one another. We're called to sacrifice for the sake of our spouse and the gospel of Jesus Christ is our example and motivation. And when we sin and fall short of what we're called to do, we appeal for forgiveness to a God who loved us and gave himself for us. The roles of husbands and wives, or we could say men and women, they don't begin at the altar. They begin at the cross. Your marriage will be no better than the vision or the purpose that you have for it, than the vision and the purpose that you have for your spouse.
and your willingness to sacrifice your will and your priorities to see the cultivation of the character of Christ formed in one another. That's what it all calls down to. In marriage and in relationships and in the church, together we are called to cultivate the character of Christ in one another. And when you rightly understand that call, when you rightly understand that purpose, it can actually feel very daunting and very overwhelming. And all of a sudden, you'll get much less confident about who you are, what you can do, and all the skills and abilities that you thought you had. But let me say this as we pray. That's exactly where you need to be. Husbands, that's exactly where you need to be. Wives, that's exactly where you need to be. Church family, and thinking about the responsibility of caring for the spiritual well-being of one another. That's exactly where you need to be because it's only when we acknowledge our inability, it's only when we acknowledge our insufficiency to love, to sacrifice, and to serve like Christ that we can have the opportunity to turn to him in humility, that we can turn to him for strength. And only as we turn to the grace of God and learn to enjoy it deeply do we begin to taste and see that he has perfectly and adequately done what we can't do. Let me encourage you with this. This is an encouragement. Don't look so somber. We can love and sacrifice for one another because Jesus has first loved us and laid his life down for us. Your calling as a man, your calling as a woman, your calling as a husband or a wife, it's grounded in the gospel, driven by God's grace, and it's perfected by his love. We can love and serve and sacrifice for one another because God has loved us first, because he gave himself up for us first, and he leads us every single day in in mercy and grace. My prayer is this. May God strengthen the marriages that exist here already. May God produce healthy marriages in this place. May God produce men and women in this place who are learning what it is to enjoy grace deeply, to not just have a knowledge of it, but the sense and taste of its goodness and its power. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its capacity to clarify, its capacity to encourage, its capacity to correct. And Father, just as I prayed a minute ago for the men, I want to pray for the women before I forget. Thank you, Father, for the the women that you've brought to this church. Thank you for the wives that are in this church that display hearts that enjoy your grace. We are blessed with women who have learned what it is to enjoy your grace, who have learned what it is to be co-laborers with their husbands in the purpose of cultivating the character of Christ in this world and in their souls. Thank you for them. May they be a blessing. May they be a blessing continued to their families. May they be a blessing continued to this church. Lord, I pray for the women in this church who who are learning what those things are, who are not married yet, who are growing in their understanding of you. May they be women of strength, women of nobility and dignity, as your word says. Women whose husbands and families one day will rise up and praise them. May they learn to fear you alone. May they learn to surrender to your scripture. May they learn to commit themselves to the purpose for which you created them. May they find joy in doing what you've called them to do. May they be like that woman in Proverbs 31 whose 
who opens her mouth and kindness and wisdom and intelligence pour out from her tongue. Lord, may you cultivate women like that in this church as we continue to understand what it is to enjoy grace deeply, as we continue to surrender ourselves to your word and trust in your goodness and grace. And though we pray for the marriages that are here, some are struggling, some are bearing fruit. God, we pray that both find their strength, find their power, find their encouragement, and find their definition in your gospel. Lord, heal the hurts of those who are struggling. Heal the hurts of those who are wrestling with marriages who, that didn't produce the fruit of glory and righteousness that they had hoped. Father, as grace is preached, as grace is taught, as the gospel is proclaimed, or may hurts be healed, may hope be restored. Lord, we ask that, that we trust your word and surrender to your word and that through our lives and through our homes, your glory be reflected to this world. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.